All right, you guys. Hey, man, how's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Uh, it's mostly foreign policy, anti-war stuff from a libertarian perspective. Oh, I'm very libertarian. You could ask Tom Woods or Sheldon Richmond. They'll tell you. I'm an anti-government extremist. Oh, yes. Uh, I hate welfare as much as warfare, but I focus on uh, warfare. Well, no, because I hate it more. It's worse. Welfare is pretty evil, too. Uh, but yeah, the warfare state is a uh, primary enemy here. Uh, it's just a matter of priorities, man. We need to get rid of the whole damn thing. I used to think when I was a kid, the problem is the Federal Reserve. If you get rid of the central bank, and then the government can't inflate money anymore, then they can't pay for all the wars, they can't pay for all the police state, they can't pay for all the horrible things that they want to do to everyone. But then, I think it was somebody in my cab, actually, back, I don't know, i say probably 15 years ago now. Some... Some ancient history long as time ago said to me, yeah, but Congress passed the Federal Reserve Act. You get rid of the Federal Reserve, but you keep the Congress, you're just going to get another one. And I thought, you know what? He's right. We got to abolish the Congress. The Constitution was just the Patriot Act of 1787. That's all it was. Overreaction. Exploitation. After Shay's rebellion to ram through a new national government, mostly in the name of a free trade agreement between the states. It's insane. Anyway, I'm against it. That's what I'm doing here, posing it. Trying to get you liberals and conservatives especially to snap out of it. Jesus, you're like uh, Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. With your Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, but whatever would I do without my security force that is, hmm, come to think of it, the greatest threat to my life and liberty by far? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe you'd be free to live. Considered that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Ideology and all this crap. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, just the facts. Just the truth. We got to get to that. Phil Giraldi's going to be on the show. He's going to talk about the power of the Israel lobby in Europe and all over the world, uh, just as it is here in the United States. And then maybe I, I hope we have a chance to get into uh, his article about the Pentagon, too. Um, yeah, boy, there's so much. And then Joe Loria, our old friend Joe Loria. I couldn't get a hold of him. Did I tell you this? I, I can't get a hold of Joe Loria. Well, that's because I was using the wrong old email address, and he's got a new one now. But thanks to Sam Husseini and his morning press release, blam, I now have Joe Loria's correct gotting email address, and so therefore I got Joe Loria coming on the show. Uh, UN Joe, we call him, usually covers the UN in New York. Right now he's in Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan, covering the war. And, you know, I guess we're going to have to ask Phil about this, too, because he was a CIA officer stationed in Turkey back in the day. And so I think it's really important we get his perspective on what the hell is going on right now in Syria. It's crazy. Oh, it's so crazy. It's absolutely out of control crazy. It is. It's like, um, and I hate hyperbole because I guess I used to be so hyperbolic and then I got tired of being wrong about stuff and embarrassed. 
But it really is reminiscent of the run-up to World War I or some kind of insane thing where you have such conflicts of interest playing out and and none of the incentives where you and I would want them to make these national governments want to back down from their horrifying positions that they've taken. And look at who all is involved in the mess in Syria. It's every power in the world, less China, is messing around in there. And yeah, if you heard that the Chinese were, that was a bunch of crap. But anyway. Um, yeah. And then our friend Mohammed Sahimi is going to be on the show. And I love me some Mohammed Sahimi. You know, uh, he's an Iranian expat, hates the Ayatollah. Uh, we know him because, of course, for years and years we've interviewed him about the harmlessness of Iran's safeguarded civilian nuclear program, uh, which he's great on. Uh, hates the Ayatollah, but loves peace between America and Iran and has been doing his best to keep it that way. Well, now that we finally put the nuclear issue to bed, at least for a little while... Uh, he's been able to, to uh, expand his writing subjects a bit more, and it is tied to the nuclear deal. Um, and we talked with him. We did one interview like this before, um, and we got another one coming up today about the internal politics inside Iran. So this will either be really boring or really interesting for you, depending on how interested you are in these things. But um, there are upcoming elections at the end of this month, and there's a lot riding on these elections and Mohammed Sahimi's got a great take on it in the national interest. I think we're running it today at antiwar.com. Let me check here if we got Sahimi. Was that today or yesterday? Uh oh that was yesterday. Or maybe maybe it's tomorrow. Wait, let me check the database real quick. I'm sorry, I can't keep track of it all, kids. Um I keep track of the yeses and the no's. Eric decides when to run them. No, it hasn't run yet. It's running tomorrow. Iran's elections, reformists, hardliners, and the deep state. So that is coming up on the show as well. Happy to have a chance to bring you guys that. All right, so, um, and I got some news to cover here. Uh, I'll, I'll mention a couple of stories here real quick before we head out to this first break, and then we'll have one more segment to cover the news before we get to the interviews today. Uh, first of all, the president of Ukraine is asking, uh, that's Poroshenko, is asking Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenuk to resign the prime ministership. Oh, by the way, chat room guys, listen real close, especially if you have headphones on. Can you hear that high-pitched thing? You know, I uh, I couldn't find it, but now I realize what it is. It's the new modem. AT&T's modem crapped out on me last week, you might remember. I had to get a new modem, and then I figured it out this morning. That's where that high-pitched kind of siren... It's quiet, but it's very high-pitched. It annoys the hell out of me. Let me let me know, guys. Here, I'll be quiet for a second. Tell me if you can hear it. Oh, it went away. Oh, there it is again. No, I'm not hallucinating. I swear to God, I put my ear up to the modem this morning. I went, aha! So, going to have to call AT&T right after the show and get a quiet non-high-pitched squeal making one. And why in the world should a modem, it's not like it's dialing up, why should it sound like my ear ringing? (laughs) You know what I mean? Somebody in the uh, design department over there needs to get kicked in the pants. 
All right, anyway, Yats, I don't know if he's going or not, but uh, you all remember from the coup d'etat in 2004, uh, Victoria Newland. I think Yats is the guy. I think Yats, Yats is, the, is guy. the guy. Yats is the guy. Yeah, uh, that's uh, Robert Kagan's wife plotting a coup d'etat. All you have to do is uh, type in F the EU, and you'll find the whole leaked um, plot on YouTube. I mean, here, the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, basically the ambassador to the EU, Victoria Nuland, plots a coup d'etat on, I think what we have to assume was just an unsecured regular cell phone. The Russians recorded the whole thing and put it on YouTube. And then the coup d'etat happened. Yeah, this is the guy, the coup d'etat took place three, four days, or a week later. And Yats became the new prime minister. Busted. Well, so now he's getting kicked out, maybe. Uh, Ukraine teeters a few steps from chaos. Of course, uh, all the Nazis are threatening to overthrow the uh, pseudo-democratic government that they helped install there on a moment's notice on a regular basis. So uh, we'll see if uh, throwing yats under the bus will appease the Azov Battalion and the right sector Hitler-loving Nazis. I'm betting not. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrenSCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. It's the Scott Horton Show. I'm him and all that. I'm doing a little mini fundraiser here for the new servers. I can't wait till the new anti-spam program gets put on the new servers. Oh, my God. Trump IQ booster. Trump brain pill. Trump business plan. Trump brain pill. Really? Jeez, I think, you know what? I am dumb enough to want one of those. Anyway, uh, stop by scotthorton.org slash donate. You know, I do have one of you guys. It's just another one of you guys who said, damn it, I'll put down matching funds. But, you know, and I'm trying to raise 700 bucks. That's the difference that I still owe Sneaker for the servers. I already gave him the Kickstarter money. Um, I owe him 700 more bucks. And uh, this guy, he says, you know, I'll match up to the seven. But, uh, and we're not even quite there, but we're almost there. But... um. It would be nice if I didn't really have to ask him for his entire 350, you know? If I could get a few more of you guys to kick in a little bit here and a little bit there. And I've gotten some 10s and some 15s and some 20s and a couple of 50s, and I really appreciate it, man. I hate coming to you guys. What I really want to do is sell you ads, um, you know, and not ask for donations. Problem is, eh, tough times all over, man. I lost the Council for the National Interest. Um, I lost uh, Samurai Tech Academy. 
I lost the immigration book. Uh, yay. And, you know, um, it's sort of a marginal thing anyway. So my margin just got much smaller. Uh, but if anybody wants to advertise on the show, I won't have to waste time, uh, Hector and you for donations anymore. But at least, you know, the good news is Sneaker went ahead and put down $2,500 for two badass new servers with extra hard drives and everything. And they're going to last forever and they're going to not break all the time. And it's going to be great. And the two servers that we've had are now like 15 years old or 10 years old or 12 or something. Um, you know, they were, they were used when I got them. But so, and I know that you guys are so, I know for a scientific fact because of the tweets and the emails and the phone calls, uh, that you're so terribly disturbed every time that the server goes down and your archives are delayed. I don't mean to be patronizing where I agree. It's terrible. It sucks. You know, especially, you know, you guys are counting on me to put out new material for you and then I can't because of technical stuff. It sucks. It's a bad deal. We're working on that. Um, Sneaker already put the money down. He's good for five. I took the Kickstarter money for the YouTube project, which can't be done until we get this, the server deal straight anyway. So I took that 1200 1300 and put that toward the, um, well, 1280 whatever. It was almost 1300 So, uh, 1300 from that. And then, so I need the other seven and we almost got enough. We got matching funds too to help match. So, um, you know, hey, if you donate 10 or 15 or 20, it'll get matched. It'll be 20 or 30 or 40. So, uh, yeah, 50 could be 100. So, scotthorton.org slash donate. Okay, that's all I got to say about that. Uh, and then the next thing I got to say is I saw this this morning on uh, Twitter that uh, the great John Schwartz. I love John Schwartz, man, from Tiny Revolution. Um and he tweeted out a thing because today, uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, the former, uh, Secretary General of the UN died. Uh, I don't care. Whatever. I don't know anything about him really, but other than I don't think there should be a UN. But anyway, uh, interestingly, Schwartz tweeted out the U.S. ousted Boutros Ghali for releasing a UN report on the Israeli massacre at Kana. The Kana massacre. Operation Grapes of Wrath by Israel in southern Lebanon. In 1996, fun trivia fact, it was, I guess, the day or two days before Kana, but during Operation Grapes of Wrath, that Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, joined the army. Not the U.S. Army, signed up to kill Americans for Osama. Filled out his last will and testament. Uh, to get revenge on Americans for what Israel was doing in southern Lebanon. Now, how many Americans in 1996 had a 275 million? How many had any idea that Israel murdered a bunch of women and children at Kana or that they had paid for the massacre with the money taken right out of their paychecks and that, hey, somebody minded? Right, not one in a hundred million. Well, not one in 50 million. So there was the Kana massacre. Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, September 11th. Uh, joined up Al-Qaeda that day or decided that he would. And uh, it's also interesting to note that, interesting, you know, for trivia, just for fun, because it's just interesting for interesting sake, not because it means anything that you need to learn or anything like that. Osama bin Laden got kicked out of Sudan, apparently at Bill Clinton's request. They could have got him, but instead 
they had the Sudanese exile him to Afghanistan. And as soon as he got to Afghanistan, uh, about a month later, he put out his first declaration of war against the United States. It's called, get this, the Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. Pretty subtle, huh? It also goes on, and that, yeah, okay, you get it. It also goes on for about a third of it about Israel in Palestine and in Lebanon, killing women, killing children. How come their blood is blood, but our blood is water, Osama wrote. And then something like, I'm paraphrasing, we'll show you, you Americans who pay for Israelis to murder children. Now, I'm not saying he was right. I'm not saying he was justified. I'm just saying that when Israel kills children... They motivate people to kill you and people that love you because America, the U.S. government, pays the Israeli government billions of dollars every year to kill people with. True history. So at the time that Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright were saying, oh, that Boutros, Boutros, golly, who proved that the Israelis were lying and that they knew good and well that they were murdering women and children at the first, oh, the first Kana massacre. We're not talking about 2006. We're talking about 1996. The first Kana massacre. Um, when they were saying, ooh, we got to cover that up. Ooh, we hate that truth getting out. Ooh, we don't want the American people knowing that the Israelis deliberately murder children with their money and that that could cause problems for them. So let's fire him. Let's force him out of the U.N. position. And let's care. Let's cover up and carry on. Leading, as Marco Rubio would not say, uh, Bill Clinton's behavior leading directly to the September 11th attacks. And, of course, Rubio is correct to blame Clinton for not getting bin Laden. Osama bin, uh, 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 Michael Scheuer gave Bill Clinton 10 different chances to kill bin Laden before 9-11. According to one Senate report, there were 13 chances to kill bin Laden. And they were thwarted time and time again by Bill Clinton and his lawyers who said, no, you can't do it. Or by Sandy Berger. Remember Sandy Berger? Hiding classified information. They never released what all it was that he had taken off with. Well, it was him intervening to warn um, people who were with bin Laden when bin Laden was about to get killed with them nearby, which uh, led to him being tipped off and saved on a strike in, I think, 1998. But it was also Bill Clinton's violence that motivated the terrorist war against the U.S. in the first place. The real point. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. 
WallStreetWindow.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And uh, first guest up today is our friend Phil Giraldi, former CIA and DIA officer. Um, well, quote unquote former. I don't know exactly how that works. When you're, once you're in the mafia, they never let you out, right? Um, and then, uh, yeah, he's also a regular writer at the American Conservative Magazine and Uns.com. Welcome back to the show, Phil. How you doing? I'm fine, Scott. How about you? I'm doing real good. Uh, I'm kind of just messing with you there. But then again, I asked you if you could be on the show, and you emailed me back and said, I'm in Sudan. And I thought, wow, I guess that's how it works when you're in the CIA. They just keep you keep you working even after you retire. Is that it? Uh, not exactly. Oh, I you mean, were just I, there I, in, on, in Darfur on vacation? <laughs> it, it would not have been much of a vacation. I was in Khartoum. Uh-huh. Uh, I was the guest of an NGO uh, that has been inviting uh, Americans and Europeans over to get a look on the ground of what's going on in the country. And in particular, obviously, they're trying to uh, mitigate the the sanctions that the United States has imposed on the country. So I was there kind of assessing what was going on and what the what the real reality was. That's interesting. Okay, so what's the real reality then? Well, the real reality is that it's an autocratic state. There are a lot, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things not to like about it. There is continuing low-level conflict in Darfur, uh, as well as in other regions in the country. But at the same time, the... Um, the, the reasons for instituting across-the-board sanctions. Now, for example, in, in Sudan, they can't bank. They can't get money out of the country. They can't buy things from other countries because the United States has put a clamp uh, over their, their banking system. So the whole economy is affected by what the United States is doing. And uh, so anyway, you know, the, the, the fact is these, these sanctions were put in place at a time when everything was quite different, when there was a major war going on with the southern part of the country, uh, civil war, and there was uh, extreme violence in Darfur. Uh, so, you know, my conclusion basically is that um, uh, the sanctions have, have outlived their usefulness, and it's time to take another look at them and uh, try to give the Sudanese a chance to uh, develop their economy. All right, now, so... And just to be clear here, so you weren't sent there by Langley. You were just invited by this NGO, and you went. No, I mean, Langley would would probably want to send me somewhere where I would disappear down a hole for a long time. <laughs> uh, but apart from that, Langley doesn't particularly like me, so I, I am not a, certainly going to be on their uh, approval list for, for doing uh, travel. Yeah. Okay, now, I can say here, I can't prove that, but I think if anybody will read your articles that they would see why you would say that, and that that's probably the most likely, uh, you know, explanation of, of how it is the bosses feel about you these days. Uh, and so, speaking of which, let's talk about South Sudan. It was the USA and the CIA that invented such a thing, huh? Well, to a certain extent. I mean, it was like, you know... Uh... The, uh, the whole, I've, I've, since I came back, I've done some research on, on the issue of what happened there, how it happened, and so on and so forth. And the U.S. media and the U.S. government, to a certain extent, portrayed this as a, uh, a conflict between Muslims in the north and Christians and animists in the south. And, of course, the Christians and animists are mostly black African, and the Muslims, of course, are, are Arabs. But, of course, 
when you actually visit Sudan, you realize that it's it's ethnically, racially, and religiously a whole lot more mixed than that. Um, if you go to the downtown area where the government offices are located, uh, the first thing you see is the Roman Catholic Cathedral, uh, and it's open. <laughs> you know, so it, it's uh, there are a lot of contradictions in terms of the the stuff that the U.S. was peddling, and you're certainly right that there was. Um, uh, a lot of involvement of, of shall we say, clandestine forces from the United States in terms of how things developed and why they developed the way they did. Mm. Well, and that's because all the oil is in the South, not the North. Right. And so they want to just break it right off and, and then mm-hmm. thereby keep the Chinese out more than anything else, right? Right. But, of course, the Chinese are in because because of our stranglehold on, on banks and things like that. The only ones who will invest there are Chinese. Yeah. All right, now... Well, yeah. So that's an interesting point that so the American government is is pursuing this policy, but they're freezing American companies out. Yeah, that's right. Chevron was in there and and I think a couple of other oil companies from the U.S. And as soon as the bank uh, freeze went in in place, uh, they they left. Mm -hmm. So basically, we cut off our own uh, business interests. Oh, and that's Uh, because the pipeline uh, has to run through the north, through the rest of Sudan. Is that right, Phil? To Port Sudan, that's right. Uh-huh. It was, uh, South Sudan is, is landlocked, and the uh, pipeline goes up to Port Sudan. That's the only way to export the oil. So, mm-hmm. South Sudan and North Sudan have now cut a deal. They're they're you know working together. Uh, they have no problem with it, but apparently um, the Obama administration does. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you got two very important articles here: the Pentagon fights back and Israel's international conspiracy. This is the one we really got to talk about in the next segment. But for the rest of this one, can we please talk about what the hell is going on in Syria right now? And I'm sorry because I know you've been out of town, but I know you must also know that Turkey has been bombing apparently yeah. Kurds and Assad's forces inside yeah. Syria, right as America and Russia say they've worked out a ceasefire. Phil, yeah, it's totally insane. I mean, well. Erdogan, uh, the the Turkish president, is totally insane. He's the one that's driving all this because basically he sees a process developing that is contrary to what he would want to see in the region. And that means essentially, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, he is is basically, uh, I don't know, pathological about the possible development of any Kurdish entity, political entity, anywhere in the region. And so he's going after the Kurds again. He's apparently he is threatening right now to invade uh, with the Turk with the Turkish army, and uh, to uh, basically go after the Kurds, go after the Assad's army. These are the, uh, you know they're the only effective forces against ISIS, and, and they're being and, backed by the Russians and the Americans against ISIS right now. Right, but I just I just read something online where you know they're saying that uh, the United States might back Turkey in this. I can't even understand it anymore. I mean, uh, admittedly, our government is completely insane, but sometimes it, it, you have to even question uh, whether insanity is uh, a good enough label. Yeah, incoherent is probably just more to the point. It, like nobody's in charge, least of all the president. But, you know, John Kerry was saying the right thing, which was, well, what do you want me to do? Get into war with Russia? Sorry, forget it. In other words, my bluff has been called. I'm backing down now, which is exactly what I want to hear every government official say about everything, goddammit. But in this case, I mean, I couldn't ask for better than that at this point, really. And yet, does, does he have no influence in Ankara or what? 
I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just, I think that that essentially right from the beginning, uh, Erdogan has been playing his own game, and that's that's been obvious. To, it should have been obvious to everybody. But I think that that here's the calculation. I think the calculation is that the United States believes that to have any kind of successful policy uh, vis-a-vis Syria. Turkey has to be a major player, and Turkey has to be a base for U.S. air power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they've, they've, they've basically come down with the viewpoint that it's better to have Turkey in this somehow than to have them out of it. But I, I can't even see that anymore. I mean, Turkey is the loose cannon on deck that's going to destroy any kind of agreement, and that essentially is going to go after the, the, the only effective forces fighting ISIS. ISIS is the only thing there that threatens the United States uh, in any way. Well, but so, yeah. so if Turkey really threatens Assad's government, then Russia is going to bomb Turkey. That is a, that is a distinct possibility, yeah, and that is something to think about too. I mean, uh, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the Russians, uh, regrettable that there have been civilian casualties, but the Russians are the only ones that are pushing this fight and, and are doing it successfully. Uh, and, and, you know, yet we can't take, look the old gift horse in the mouth on this. Well, you know, I don't know if the presidential campaign is that much of an indicator of it, but it seems like, you know, if you hear the, the Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush consensus on this, it's still that Assad is the obstacle here. America, you know, Jeb is complaining that Russia's bombing Al Qaeda, not just ISIS, like there's promised and all this kind of crap still. You know, they, they sound like they're stuck on the talking points of four months ago and can't get them updated. And I don't mm-hmm. know if they're going to get us all killed. I know it sounds silly to, to talk about war between the U.S. and Russia when it, it seems so unnecessary. But then again, our allies seem to be, you know, risking it. One sec, y'all. Hey, Al Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one-ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at commoditydiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash commoditydiscs. And thanks. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. All right, now coming up at the top of the hour, we got Joe Loria, who's uh, written quite a few good pieces about what's going on in Syria as well uh, for consortiumnews.com, and he's regularly with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but so right now, I want to change the subject. Well, it's obviously related, uh, the subject. It's uh, Phil Giraldi on the line. And his latest piece for uns.com is called Israel's International Conspiracy. Nearly every Western country has an Israel lobby. And, you know, of course, as we know, and I don't think we really need to rehearse all the ways right now, although we could if you want to talk about it, Phil, um, a big part of America's policy in Syria is basically just a favor to Israel. 
to help weaken Iran because that's what Israel wants, to help weaken Assad, who supports Hezbollah, because that's what Israel wants. They've made that very clear over the years. The Americans have made it very clear. I mean, Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, that's why I'm doing this, all right, in 2012. So there's just no mystery about it. But then, so the question is, how could the world's greatest empire of all history, the biggest government in the history of the solar system, take orders from a country the size of New Jersey over there on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea? Uh, and, and, and the same thing for, you know, old, the, the old Roman Empire in the European Union. Uh, how is it that the Israelis get away with what they get away with, Phil? Part of it goes back, you know, to a Holocaust guilt trip, uh, and that's particularly effective when dealing with the Europeans. Uh, and and of course, in the United States, we have we have different buttons that are pushed. Uh, the, there's been a consistent effort for the last 50 years to uh, convince the public uh, by way of the media, by way of uh, contacts in government, that is Israel's. Um, foreign policy objectives and its security needs are basically identical to those of the United States. And, of course, that's nonsense. Uh, a lot of this is done, and what I've discussed in the article is that um, this is a carefully coordinated effort run out of Israel in, in, in many cases uh, using uh, diaspora Jews and, and, and sympathetic Christians, essentially, to uh, create this narrative. And it, it happens everywhere. And in every country, there's a there's a lobby that has its own kind of distinctive footprint, but at the same time is is lined up uh, uncritically with support of Israel and whatever the Israeli government is doing. So we find it in France, we find it in Britain, we find it in Germany, uh, we find it in Australia, New Zealand, Canada. It's it's uh, it's worldwide. Mm. Well, and here in America. I mean, I guess, especially when it comes to the Congress, basically the message is, if you cross us, there will be hell to pay. But obviously there's a lot more to the lobby than that, but that seems to be really where the rubber meets the road is, oh, we will back whoever primaries you, and we will back whoever opposes you in the general if you survive the primary, and we won't forget you, and, and we'll stay after your ass for 10 years, and hey, that's good politics in a democracy, no doubt about that, and of course they're not registered as foreign agents, they get to act like, you know, this is all just American issues or whatever. But so, is that how it is in Europe too, that they have that much influence over the legislative branches, or or what are the levers that they're pushing on? Well, it's very similar in a lot of ways. The, uh, uh, in terms of uh, influence over the legislature, there's, uh, there's a, a long tradition of, of Jewish parliamentarians uh, closely allied to Israel in both the conservative and labor parties in, in Britain. Uh, in France, there's, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware, uh, France has, uh, after the United States and Israel, the largest uh, Jewish population in, in the world. And uh, many of them are are prominent in in uh, business, and and many of them are prominent in government. Uh, and you know, this is not to say that all of them necessarily line up behind Israel, but enough of them do to create some kind of consensus. For example, when I discussed France uh, in my article, I did I mentioned that that uh, there France has probably the least free uh, right to speech uh, in Europe. And they have hate crimes that are, are rigorously enforced, but the hate crimes themselves are generally uh, only enforced uh, when someone is saying something about Jews. Um, the uh, Charlie Hebdo, for example, constantly lampoons Muslims and, and Christians, but is, is very light in terms of uh, lampooning Jews because it knows it would get in trouble. 
So it's, uh, you know, it creates this kind of uh, no, you know, sense of we don't want to criticize Israel because it just ain't worth it. <laughs> and right. and that's pervasive. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's a really good way to put it, too, is that it's just it's enough dissuasion to eh, just eh, why bother. And, you know, it's important to note. And I know it's so stupid that I usually don't even address it. It should just go without saying but this isn't about anti-Semitism at all. Phil Giraldi's not anti-Semitic and neither am I. And and that's really not what it's about. You look at all the you know, not all many of the best leaders of the anti-war movement and and people helping with BDS and all the rest of it are Jewish. And so, you know, as as he was saying, it's not a matter of even saying, oh, yeah, no, they all agree about everything or anything. Just enough do to create a consensus to keep the national governments of these countries in lockstep, basically behind Israel's position. And another thing, and again, this is stupid and it should just go without saying, uh, but it, I, I want to bring it up, is that we're not just talking about Israel being Israel. It's a question of the ongoing occupation of the millions of Palestinians in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and, um, and, you know, others too. And, um, and so that's the thing of it is, is the crime that America continues to push. And that's not to say the Nakba's okay and 48 borders or 67 borders are perfect or something like that. But at least what we're fighting, what is being fought over here is the occupation, not the very existence of a home for, uh, you know, exile, uh, you know, refugee European Jews after the Holocaust or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true that, you know, Europeans and Americans and, and most of the world, uh, even in the, in the Arab world now, accepts the existence of Israel. This is not the question. The question is, what are the other things that come with these hard right-wing governments that Israel has that impact, on, uh, that impact in fact, on, like, the United States and, and United States policy or British policy or French policy? Uh, this kind of stuff is, it should be unacceptable. Uh, and, and because nobody wants to take it on because it's just, it's just too painful, uh, they tend to get a pass. And, uh, this, of course, is changing. I mean, you and I couldn't have had this conversation probably five, even five years ago. Well, but you now, and I could, but... <laughs> yeah, we might have. Yeah, we probably did. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Uh, the, yeah, but the fact is that, you know, it's it's in the mainstream now. Right. Uh, and um, so, anyway, we need kind of a, a, a reassessment of, of what this all means and what and what it means in terms of how countries should interact and and what kind of dependency relationships there are between countries because it's a the united states is um is alternative uh, alternately either a, a patsy towards some other countries and towards other countries it's a, it's a monster mm-hmm. and we can't quite seem to get it quite right well and you know this is the thing too i mean you know that that it really is changing and i think uh well i don't know if you saw that, uh, Thomas Friedman finally came out and said, everybody stop talking about the two-state solution. It's too late. It's over. Now, that is in a, a radical position uh, in some circles. And yet here Tom Friedman is saying, shrug. You know what? It is one state. And, you know, obviously it's Tom Friedman, so it's not like he's perfect on it or whatever. But that's a big bellwether of American liberal Jews especially having to break with Zionism because – I mean, they just they couldn't support Jim Crow in Alabama. How the hell are they going to support in the West Bank? It ain't right. 
Yeah, that that's exactly true. You know, even if you even if you don't care about the ethical issues, there's just you know you can say, look, the ethical ethical issues have a, have an impact. They they have an impact on how other countries perceive the United States and how other countries perceive Israel. And 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 uh, nobody really wants the status quo, or should want the status quo. The status quo is is basically uh, something that um, might have uh, gotten a pass in the 19th century, but it just doesn't work anymore. And uh, you know, I I think just just you know you, we got to get away from the pointing fingers in in kind of a. Um, uh, you know, he's a Jew, and the Jews support uh, support Israel, and that kind of thing. But it's not that way. It's it's a question of people who support Israel support Israel for a lot of motives, which probably uh, are complex. And uh, but at the same time, they have to realize that that there are consequences to doing so. Yeah, there you go. Well, and you know, I want to get back to the mechanics of this too, where. Uh, you know, I'm always reminded, so many things remind me of this article from 2014, I think it was, Phil, where they said, oh, no, no, I mean, it was earlier than that, 2011 or something. And they said, oh, my God, Lockheed has spent $14 million on lobbying in the first quarter of 2011. And I just laughed and probably spit coffee out my nose at 14 measly million dollars. And that's enough for a few steak dinners and Coke and horse for a few congressmen, enough to buy billions out of the treasury literally billions and it seems like if you take that kind of um analogy or metaphor or whatever and you look at it from the point of the point of view of the israeli government of how much time and effort their foreign ministry and intelligence agencies have to spend on influencing western governments it's a pittance compared to what they're getting in return and it's just you know if the they're not going to stop. They have no reason to stop. They just have to be countered by overwhelming amounts of better arguments or something. Because it would be like asking Lockheed to not put a measly point zero 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 one percent remainder of their profit margin into buy more congressmen for next year. Yeah, I mean, as long as Israel knows the math is on their side, that spending a uh, a smallish amount of money to get a huge amount of money in return, they're going to keep doing it. And that's another good reason to to support the Ron Paul line that, you know, people shouldn't get foreign aid. Foreign aid corrupts how countries interreact, and it's uh, it's a bad thing all around. Yeah. I also wanted to mention, you know, what you mentioned there, too, about Israel's true interests. I think, you know, when I read liberal former Zionists, mostly, they're so frustrated because they're stuck with the counterfactual of what they think Israel could be if the government would just make peace and give up the West Bank and let the Palestinians be independent. They have a dream of a beautiful Israel that they want to love and this and that, and it's being thrown away by the equivalent of the very dumbest-ass Republicans who run their government over there, who are running their country into the ground, turning it into South Africa. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, uh, you know, I have I have plenty of Jewish friends, and and they tend to be liberal, and they tend to be uh, very sort of uh, they reminisce about the civil rights movement and all that sort of thing, and and uh, they are really perplexed by what is happening in Israel. Yeah, well, and you know, it just seems like it's pretty easy. You and I. Uh, when we talk about these issues, we say, okay, well, let's try to look at it from China's point of view. Let's try to look at it from Turkey's point of view. Uh, let's try to look at it from the Israelis' point of view. You want to have a country that lasts for hundreds and hundreds of years into the indefinite future? Or do you want to be, you know, bankrupt and out of business because of your apartheid situation that the rest of mankind simply will not tolerate before the next centuries, you know? 
or yeah. even yep. maybe a few more decades from now. Yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Anyway, well, I'm sorry. I kept you away every time, Phil. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to say something else? Yeah, I, uh, I just sent you an article on Turkey, which you'll find interesting. Okay, yeah, I see that. I see that in the email. I will uh, check it out here. I still have a couple minutes in the break before we bring Joe on. Thanks very much for coming back on the show, Phil. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, and say hi to Joe. I definitely will. Okay. All right. right, you guys. That is the great Phil Girali. He is, yes, it's true, he's a former CIA and DIA officer, but he's great. He's at uns.com, U-N-Z, uns.com, the American conservative, and we didn't get to talk about this one, but read it. The Pentagon fights back. And very nuanced, very important article. And uh, he's also at the Council for the National Interest at councilforthenationalinterest.org. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. On the line, I've got Joe Loria. UN Joe. Uh, foreign affairs journalist based at the United Nations since 1990. He's written for the Boston Globe, the London Daily Telegraph, the Johannesburg Star, the Montreal Gazette, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, ConsortiumNews.com is where I have a couple of very important ones here. Saudis goad Obama to invade Syria and risking World War III in Syria are uh, two of his latest there. Welcome back to the show. Joe, how are you, man? I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm talking to you from Erbil in Iraq. I was about to say that. I forgot to, but I'm glad you did. Uh, They're from Iraqi Kurdistan. He's on the line there today. Um, All right. So, uh, geez, I guess the big question is, U.S. and Russia say they have a ceasefire deal. What difference does it make? None, I'm afraid. And they knew that when they announced it. And uh, even the next day, Sergei Lavrov was saying there's only a 50-50 chance. The issue comes down to what was the problem before these peace talks, these aborted talks in Geneva took place, which was the U.S. and Russia did not agree on a definition of terrorists, uh, terrorism and who are terrorists in Syria. So the fact is that this cessation of hostilities allows continued uh, military action against terrorist groups. The only two they agree on are Islamic State and al-Nusra Front, the al-Qaeda branch in Syria. But there's a whole bunch of other groups. Uh, the Army of Conquest and these uh, al-Shara'a-Ram and these groups that the Americans say are moderate and that the Russians say are not. So the Russians are going to keep hitting them, and there's going to be a problem there. Uh, so there, there's going to be continued hostilities. But more importantly, this, this, so the, the Russian-backed Syrian Arab army is making enormous gains on the ground. Even U.S. officials and testimony in Congress have had to admit this, and that's when you know that the Russians are telling the truth. When it's confirmed up on the hill, they are they are approaching Raqqa, which is the so-called capital of the Islamic State. 
There's one story up there, unconfirmed, that that uh, Syrian Arab Army has to cut off a 15-kilometer uh, wide stretch, uh, and it will, it will be able to cut off the eastern part of the uh, Islamic State and the west. It will be cut off between inside Syria, let alone Iraq, uh, and that they're marching on, on Raqqa. And there's a, a lot of people speculating that the Americans want to get there first. There's kind of a race to get to Raqqa first, see mm-hmm. who can conquer the Islamic State. But right now, the Russians and Syrian Arab Army the Iranians, Hezbollah, Iraqi Shiite militias who are fighting on the side of the government in Syria have without doubt the upper hand. Uh, it, this bombing started in September, and it's made an enormous difference on the ground. So this, there's obviously a drive towards a victory, uh, and that's the reason why the Saudis and the Turks are going absolutely nuts and want to invade, and they want to get their men on the ground, but they don't. They can't do it without the Americans, especially the Saudis. So that's why I wrote that piece saying they're trying to go the Americans into invading to be as part of the coalition on the ground because they are desperate. They've spent five years of investment uh, in trying to overthrow Assad, and it's all blowing up in their faces now. And only the Americans could save them, and only Barack Obama could stop them. Mm. God dang, what a mess. And I already know what you're talking about, but still you got me all tied up in knots here. All right, so first of all, for the audience, you need to know, Raqqa, that's the capital of Islamic State. That is, uh, you know, I mean, obviously they can flee to Mosul and Fallujah and fight another day. But if they lose Raqqa, that's a huge loss for IS as far as that goes. But then so um, and I think this audience, we got a pretty good idea of of uh, who's on which side of the lines, except, of course, there are a lot of contradictions because, you know, America's on both and, and even more three and four sides of these different lines where we support Badr in Iraq, but oppose them in Syria. We support the Kurds in Iraq and in Syria, but we are also NATO allies with their enemies, the Turks, um, you know. And so, you know, when you say that there's a race to Raqqa and the Russian air power is backing up Assad's army on the ground and they're running and the U.S. wants to beat him there. The U.S. wants to beat him there with who? With with the YPG Kurdish Syrians or with this new Saudi force that they're building up there? I mean, that's the part I can't get my head around is the idea of some kind of, you know, Saudi infantry pouring in from Turkey or something like that to to beat Assad's army. I mean, they're just putting themselves in Russia's crosshairs at that point and and counting on Obama to face the Russians down or something? I don't know, Joe. What? Yeah, it's not going to happen. They're, they're not going to get anybody on the ground. And the Islamic State probably lose Raqqa to the, the Assad's forces. And uh, that's the maybe the end, of, uh, that's the end of the Saudi dream of overthrowing Assad in Syria. Well, but the, the Turks have been attacking it. the Kurds and well, even Assad's Turks, army, Turks are, right? Turks are a different issue. Uh, because Aleppo is probably right now more important even than Raqqa. That, if they can, they've pretty much encircled it. I mean, the South, the Syrian army, with Russian support, they pretty much encircled that city. There are Islamic State in the east, and there's only half of the city that was controlled by rebels. And they've got that pretty much surrounded. They're cutting off aid and arms and supplies from Turkey into uh, various rebel groups, including Islamic State. Uh, and this is what Turkey cannot uh, abide by, and they've started to strike Raqqa, but they're also, they, they have two uh, aims, of course, uh, the Turks. This is Erdogan, uh, who is becoming more authoritarian by the day, and is, as I point out in my article, isn't even legally uh, in charge of the government. That should be the prime minister, but he's running the show. 
And he wants to defeat, not only overthrow Assad, but he wants to defeat the Syrian Kurds. Because they're aligned with the PKK, which is a group, uh, of course, that he's been fighting uh, in Turkey. And he just finished a big operation and has now turned his attention to the Syrian Kurds, where the Americans and the Russians are supporting the Syrian Kurds. Well, America has, isn't JSOC embedded with the Syrian Kurds right now? Well, the Syrian Kurds are one of the most effective ground forces to defeat Islamic State. So the U.S. also wants to defeat Islamic State, but they want to overthrow Assad. Whereas uh, Saudis and the Turks are only interested in Assad. It's clear that they've been supporting Islamic State. So uh, uh, they, if, if the uh, Arab, Syrian Arab army gets and the Russians get to Raqqa, they've destroyed the Islamic State inside Syria for them effectively. And if they completely take over Aleppo, they've pretty much uh, taken over uh, the main population centers of Syria after having taken back a lot of territory in Latakia in the early part of the Russian uh, involvement. So this is a very critical time for the Saudis, and they cannot do anything to stop it unless the Americans lead a ground invasion, which, of course, could lead to a conflict with Russia. And I don't think Obama's going to do that. He's been very reluctant to get involved in this war. As you recall, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, and Petraeus, uh, they both wanted him to set up a no-fly zone. They wanted him to arm more rebels with heavy weapons. He continuously refused to do that. The closest he got was after the chemical weapons attack in August of 2013 uh, in Ghouta, the suburb of Damascus. And at the last minute, you know, he, he backed away, even though it was across his red line. He threw it to Congress, and then he made this deal with the Russians to uh, get rid of all of Assad's chemical weapons, which just happened now. And uh, as Hussein Hirsch has written, uh, the, he, he believes British intelligence tipped off Obama that that was actually the rebels that used those chemicals and not Assad, which would make a lot more sense. Of course. Well, yeah, and we know that the CIA analysts were in revolt and refused to put out a CIA estimate blaming uh, Assad for it. So that's pretty much all you need to know right there if they're going to resign over it. So Obama has been very reluctant to get involved, and I don't think he's going to, you know, accede to the desires of Erdogan and uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is actually in many ways the the monarch right now. He's only 30 years old, but his 80-year-old father is uh, suffering from dementia, and he's the defense minister, and he's ran this disastrous war in Yemen. He cannot defeat the poorest uh, Arab country with the strongest Arab army, and uh, his all his credibility and his future may be tied up in that Yemen war. You know, the oil, uh, the, the collapse of oil prices have hurt the entire Saudi ruling circles because uh, uh, many people have lost benefits. Uh, they've been given a gravy train for the most part for all these years, but now they're pulling, cutting back. And uh, he's got to win this war in Yemen. He can't. So he may be going for broke in Syria because if they lose in Syria, uh, the guy, you know, they're in real trouble there. Yeah. All right. Now, I'm sorry. We got to take this break. Uh, hold it right there, everybody. When we get back, we'll have more with Joe Loria about the just insane crisis in the Middle East. Um, he's got two very important pieces at Consortium News for you here. Risking World War Three in Syria and Saudis goad Obama to invade Syria. Hang tight. We'll be right back after this. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. 
All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Joe Loria, UN reporter, for the most part. Right now he's covering the uh, absolute disaster in the Middle East. Um, and uh, latest two articles here for ConsortiumNews.com. Saudis goad Obama to invade Syria and risking World War III in Syria. Uh, ConsortiumNews.com for those. And... um so, yeah, there's so much to talk about and even to go back over here uh, because it's all so much with so many different sides to this conflict and uh, what have you. But I guess, first of all, so uh, I want to go back to the ceasefire deal. Uh, obviously, the Russians have proven, like in the case of the chemical weapons you mentioned there, that they have the ability to influence Assad to do what it is that they want him to do. If they come up with a ceasefire, they could get him to abide by it uh, and his army. Um, but then, uh, who was it that America was supposed to influence by agreeing to this ceasefire? We were supposed to tell the Turks and the Saudis to stop backing the terrorists there, or the CIA was going to agree to instruct Arar al-Sham and al-Nusra, or maybe just the former, that, okay, guys, we made a deal, we want you to cease fire now. And and do the Americans believe that they control Arar al-Sham and al-Nusra just because they give them guns and money all damn day for the last five years? Because I don't really think that they do control them. I don't know if they think that, uh, and I don't, know if, I don't know if they do control them. Uh, then it's, the Saudis have much more control, of course, and Turkey. But it doesn't sound like uh, America has much control over Saudi and Turkey. I mean, what what it was it that they promised well, Lavrov they were going to do? Uh, they're supposed to, everyone's supposed to stop. It's mostly about humanitarian access right now, getting aid into various places that some uh, towns that are being besieged for the last three or four years have not received much aid. So the idea was some of those areas where there's fighting going on, where they don't involve terrorist groups, and again, there's a disagreement between the U.S. and Russia about what a terrorist group is in northern Syria, that they're supposed to lay down their arms and allow the U.N. and other aid agencies to bring aid in there. That is really the main issue here. The ceasefire was supposed to have been and then, negotiated so the premise, in Geneva. Just, on, just to make sure I understand you, the, the premise being that the Americans, the CIA, could influence virtually, I guess, all groups other than Nusra and ISIS to cease fire and allow the UN to come in, etc., if they asked them to? Do I understand yeah. right? Well, yes. Uh, okay. These groups you know, are being told to stop fighting uh, in various areas where aid can get in. And whether either side can arrange this is very questionable. It would be very good, of course, if that could happen. Mm. But a ceasefire that was supposed to be negotiated in Geneva as the first order of business uh, and, and then they, could, they were supposed to bring together a transitional government for six months, and then after a year have this government where Assad steps aside, write a new constitution, have an election. That thing is almost completely dead. It's supposed to start up again on February 25th. We'll see. But uh, the, the, with the opposition led by the Saudis, they had 100 groups that they melded together. They were the ones that came with a condition, even though uh, Stefan de Mistura, the UN envoy, said this was unconditional talks. And they weren't even direct talks. They were proximity talks. They were talked through the Mistura. But the uh, opposition, the Saudi-led opposition, said they wanted Russia to stop their military action before they would talk. And Russia uh, didn't agree with that. And, and they will not agree to stop fighting now because they could still hit terrorist groups. And again, the difference will be who are the terrorist groups. They could certainly hit Islamic State 
and al-Nusra uh, under the terms of this hostility, uh, cessation of hostility. If you want to set it up here, uh, maybe we should have done this at the beginning, you know, of the two sides. We've got the Saudis and the Turks uh, and the U.S. and Europe on the side of various groups that are trying to overthrow Assad. And uh, as we and know Israel. from defense... Well, Israel is another issue here uh, that we can get into. Oh, yeah. uh, but I, I put that on the side uh, because they're playing a very uh, different game, I think, than uh, than the U.S. or the Turks or the Saudis or even the Europeans. Uh, and we know from this Defense Intelligence Agency document from August 2012 that those groups, the Turks, the Americans, the Europeans, the Gulf Arabs, helped support the establishment of a Salafist principality in eastern Syria that would put pressure on Assad. And this document warned they could join up with like-minded extremists here on the Iraqi side of the border, and that could become an Islamic state. They actually used that phrase three years uh, or two years before it came into being. So we know that this group now has become a Frankenstein. So the United States really, I think, uh, to some extent, is very serious about trying to defeat them, although it's been a half-hearted effort. And the Saudis have done nothing. And the Turks have done nothing to fight fight the Islamic State. There's plenty of evidence that Turkey and Saudi Arabia continue to support them because they are trying to overthrow Assad, and they're the strongest force to do that. So uh, in the middle of this, the Russians saw that nobody was taking care of the Islamic State, and that if if they won, they would overthrow Assad, and this this group or a horrible group like that could, could take over Syria and threaten Europe with terrorist attacks that we saw in the beginning, of course, already in Paris, and in Russia. So that was one of the main reasons Russia got into that. There's also the pipeline side of this, which we maybe shouldn't get into. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, one theory was that this entire Syrian war began. uh, One of the main reasons is because uh, Assad uh, rejected a Qatar-Saudi pipeline deal. They would pump liquefied natural gas from Qatar, which is one of the largest uh, natural gas producers in the world, through Saudi Arabia and then through Syria to the Mediterranean and on into Europe, which would cut out Russia, of course. Russia is the biggest natural gas supplier to the Europeans. So when Assad uh, denied this group and went instead with a, a deal from Iran through Iraq, northern Iraq here and into Syria, uh, shortly after that we saw an uprising in Syria. I don't buy it in that way at all. But that's one theory out there. I think there was a genuine uprising against Assad, in, in line with all the rest of the so-called Arab Spring, but very early on, outside powers glammed onto that and started to manipulate and use it for their own interests, and one of them may have been to defeat uh, Assad, put in another government that's friendly to the uh, to the Gulf Arabs so they could put this pipeline in. I don't think it's just that, because the Saudis' motive, main motive, is cutting out Iranian influence from the region. And right. this is, of course, from Iran across here, northern Iraq, into Syria, and on into Lebanon, to Hezbollah, to some extent in Yemen. So on both sides, Iranians and the Saudis both see each other as being uh, uh, rivals, so they both think they're acting defensively, but in many ways they're working offensively. So the Saudis want to cut off Iranian uh, influence in the the entire region, and if they win in Syria, of course they're one of the principal backers and maybe the principal backer of Assad, have been for years, money and now arms and Iranian troops, Iranian Revolutionary Guards, and certainly Iranian-backed Hezbollah coming from Lebanon into Syria. If they win with the Russian support, this is a huge, huge blow to Saudi Arabia. And the Turks have their own uh, interest in the Kurds. They want to all, they agree with the Saudis on overthrowing Assad, but they also have their own inter-regional 
dispute, and that's with the Kurds, as we got into earlier, these PKK-linked Syrian Kurds, not the Kurds here in northern Iraq, which yeah. Turkey has very good relations with. Right. All right, well, I'm sorry we got to uh, stop right there for this break, Joe, and let you go. But uh, thanks very much. I can guarantee there are going to be people who email me and say, man, I listened to that Joe Lauria interview three times to learn all that stuff. (laughs) It's some great stuff. I really appreciate it. Joe Lauria, consortiumnews.com, y'all. Have a good one. Appreciate it. All right, back with uh, Mohammed Sahimi in just a sec, y'all. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. Hey, man, how's it going, y'all? Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm doing a show. LibertyRadioNetwork.com. All right. Next up is our friend Mohammed Sahimi. He's a professor of chemical engineering at USC. Boo, go Bruins. Uh, no offense, though. And uh, but we don't usually talk with him about chemical engineering so much, but about Iranian politics and. As I was saying earlier on the show, uh, he did a great job for years and years and years uh, helping us truth tellers debunk the lies about Iran's nuclear program. But now that that's sort of kind of out of the way, it's still relevant to this story, of course. Um, Mohammed lately has been focusing a little bit more in depth on... Um, you know, the internal politics, well, I should say, did wrote a lot back in 2009 during the so-called Green Revolution and all that, too. Um, but uh, very in-depth reporting on the internal politics in Iran. And it's really important right now here in February 2016 because there are elections coming up at the end of this month and in the wake of the signing and the implementation of the Iran deal. So there's a hell of a lot at stake uh, when it comes to all of that. But so anyway, uh, first of all, welcome to the show, Mohammed. Great to talk to you again, sir. Thank you for having me on your program, Scott. Great to be back in your program. I uh, love talking to you always. So um, you say here right at the beginning, come on, these aren't democratic elections, okay? They're, they're some kind of elections, um, but they are what they are. So what exactly are they? Help us understand. Well, they are not democratic in the sense that people who register with Ministry of Interior to run in the elections must pass several filters put in, in place by the ruling elite in order to make sure that those that the ruling elite doesn't like uh, won't get to run in the election. So as I explained in that article that you mentioned, published by National Interest, uh, um, there, are, there is a filter by Minister of Interior and there is a filter by uh, the Guardian Council that constitutionally has the right to vet all the candidates. Now, because Ministry of Interior now is run by the Rouhani administration, which is a moderate pro-reform uh, administration, almost all the people who want, wanted to run in the elections uh, uh, basically passed the filter. They were accepted. But then when it came to uh, the uh, Guardian Council, Guardian Council is allied with hardliners and with a, uh, basically a secret and semi-secret network of hardliners in the security and intelligence and judiciary uh, organs. 
Uh, they basically disqualified uh, roughly half of all the candidates because these candidates are not to their liking. Oh, man, and half of them? Yes. And yes. what are those? What's what's that in numbers? How many people are we talking about? Well, originally over twelve thousand people uh, registered to run in the election, and the Guardian Council roughly uh, disqualified six thousand of them. Wow. Okay. Uh, the Iranian uh, uh, Parliament has two hundred ninety uh, members. Five of these two hundred ninety is dedicated to religious minorities. So. Uh, a Jewish Iranian, for example, even though they number about 10,000, they have their own representative that they elect. Uh, Iranian Christians that number about 500,000, they elect two people, and then Zoroastrians elect another one, and then uh, and Assyrians uh, elect another one. So there are five of them that have been set aside for religious minorities so that they have their own representative to Iranian parliament addressing their own uh, concerns. The other 285 uh, is uh, is uh, basically for the rest of the people. Now, reformists knew that if they want to run in the elections, uh, the vast majority of, of their candidates would be disqualified because the hard honest don't like them because they supported the Green Movement. So what they did was about 3,000 reformist candidates uh, re- registered with the Ministry of Interior to run in the election with the hope that even if 10% of them are accepted, that would be roughly 300, which means that they more or less will have one representative in each district. But that's not what happened. Only 1% of them was accepted. And then after some maneuver, a few more of them were accepted. So today, the reformists published a list of uh, their top 30 candidates for this district of Tehran, because Tehran, the capital, elects 30 people, given its population of 14 million people, uh, elects 30 people to the parliament. So they publish a, uh, a list of 30 people that they support. Now, at the same time, uh, we also have the elections for assembly of experts. Assembly of experts, according to Iranian constitution, is the organ that selects the supreme leader. And because the supreme leader has a lot of power, the elections for assembly of experts are, is, are also important. But this election in particular has become uh, vastly more important simply because most people think that uh, the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, will pass away during the next uh, term of assembly of experts. The members of assembly of experts uh, serve for 10 years. So the, most people think that over the past, uh, over the next 10 years, he will pass away. And in fact, he even himself, in a speech uh, last September, said that I may not be around in the next 10 years, and therefore we should be careful about who we select as the next supreme leader and so on. Mm-hmm. So because of that, that election has also taken uh, extraordinary uh, significance. Again, there are two groups. There are hardline clerics uh, that support... Uh, the uh, you know the security intelligence hardliners and Ayatollah Khamenei and there are reformists and moderates that have another view. I know when you were introducing me, you said that uh, these elections have bearing on Iran's nuclear program and Iran's foreign policy, and in, in fact they do. It is very important uh, for Iranians to have a moderate government in place because you, the hardliners in Iran just U.S. hardliners oppose nuclear agreement, 
And as we approached the day of implementation uh, about a month ago, the hardliners in Iran did all sorts of maneuvering in order to provoke the United States to do something so that the implementation of the agreement would at least be suspended. Uh, for example, you know, they had these uh, missiles, uh, you know, uh, they started maneuvering uh, in the Persian Gulf having missiles uh, that uh, fired and passed by, a, 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 you know, a, a U.S. carrier. And they had, uh, when those sailors were arrested, although they were released less than 24 hours later because of the Rouhani administration efforts, after that they have been putting on a lot of propaganda showing, you know, these sailors in, in, in some sad situation which, which are inhuman and should be condemned. So Iranian hardliners are also opposed to nuclear agreement. They are also opposed to opening Iran to outside wars, opening Iran economy to outside wars. And most importantly, in my view, Iranian hardliners and the Rouhani administration have two completely view of what's going on in, in, in the Middle East. Uh, if you follow what Iranian hardliners, you know, IRGC commanders and so on, uh, say about Saudi Arabia or Syria or Iraq, they, you know, they, they, they are ultra hard. They threaten Saudi Arabia. Of course, Saudi Arabia started threatening, but they also respond in kind and so on. On the other hand, if you read what uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zaif says or President Rouhani says and so on, they always talk about reconciliation, willing to negotiate Saudi Arabia, willing to uh, uh, cooperate uh, regarding resolving the civil war in Syria and so on. Now, one might say that this is good cop, bad cop, but it actually is not. It is two fun this is two fundamental views of what's going on in the Middle East that are vastly different. One side wants to, you know, to make compromises, just like in nuclear program, when Rouhani administration made compromises, it, they act, it actually crossed several red lines that Ayatollah Khamenei had said. They crossed those red lines in order to reach a compromise. So these are two fundamental, uh, fundamentally different views of what's going on inside right. Iran and outside. Right, absolutely. All right, let's stop right there for a sec. We got to take this break. We'll be right back, y'all, with more with Mohammed Sahimi. This one is in the national interest. I forgot to say, Iran's elections, reformist hardliners in the deep state. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'm Scott. Welcome back, guys. Wrapping up the show for the day. Thanks for tuning in. I'm on the line with Mohammed Sahimi, Iranian expat and peacemonger, a truth teller about Iran's civilian safeguarded nuclear program. I just want to make that real clear to everybody that... Um, uh, Mohammed Sami, he's uh, an Iranian expat living in the United States of America. He does not support the Ayatollah's regime, nor does he support American intervention in Iran to change their regime or improve it or do anything to it in any way whatsoever. 
Uh, he's just the facts on the nuclear program that is civilian, safeguarded, harmless nuclear program, now uh, safeguarded far beyond uh, what it ever was before. I, because I know how people get, you know? You hear somebody say, well, the Greens, this and that. They go, ah, you're CIA. Or you go, ah, well, you know, the nuclear program, this or that. And they go, ah, you're for the Ayatollah. And, uh, of course, um, I know most of you guys don't think that way, but I just kind of want to make sure that we're clear here about who's who and what's what. So, now, when it comes to the Greens, I wanted to ask you, uh, Mohammed, whether the uh, well, first of all, the current president Rouhani, he's actually not up for re-election right now, but his you know so-called at least success in in achieving the nuclear deal with the uh, U.S. and the rest of the major powers here, that's expected to be reflected in the results of the parliamentary election elections. I I guess, but I want to ask you: Is he actually part of the green movement, or you know, you said there's basically two groups, but you know, when an American says, well, you know, the reformers over there, who knows what they're or who they're talking about. So I was wondering, uh, you know, exactly what is uh, Rouhani's relationship? Is it the actual green movement that you would expect to to do any better? Or like you were saying, so many of them have been excluded. Will we even be able to see a pro Rouhani result in these elections as a response to his success in getting the nuclear deal? And the sanctions lifted. Yes. First of all, President Rouhani and uh, former Prime Minister Emir Hossein Mustavi, one of the three leaders of Green Movement, were very close. Uh, in fact, when the uh, Natanz enrichment facility started working several years ago, the very first two officials that visited the, uh, the facility were Rouhani and Mustavi because they both played a fundamental role in uh, restarting Iran's nuclear program in the 1990s and late 1980s. Rouhani never actually supported Green Movement, but since uh, before his election, when he was running for president, he has talked about uh, the, uh, the fact that the leaders of uh, Green Movement should be released from their house arrest, and he has said that if the hardliners think that these three people, the leaders of uh, Green Movement, have done anything wrong. The easiest thing is to put them on a fair and open trial so that they can explain their side and the hardliners can explain their, their side. But, of course, the hardliners are not willing to do it because they know the leaders of uh, Green Movement never really did anything wrong. They just protested the fraud that we had in 2009 presidential election. Uh, his lieutenants have also talked about it. But the fact of the matter is this is not in uh, Rouhani's control. If it were under Rouhani's control, he would have released these people, these three people, a long time ago. For the current elections, the hope is not that they would take over uh, the parliament um, by a coalition of reformists and moderates, per se, but the hope is to expel the hardline the current hardline uh, deputies or representatives to, to the parliament so that the next parliament will be more moderate and more in cooperation with the, uh, with the government. Because the present uh, parliament or majlis uh, try to impede the uh, progress of nuclear negotiations because it's dominated by hardliners. They summoned uh, Rouhani's uh, ministers, like Foreign Minister uh, Zarif and others, to, to the parliament repeatedly and questioning him. 
and they even uh, shouted slogans against nuclear uh, uh, negotiations, the United States, and so on and so forth, in the parliament, which was very ugly and 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 uh, and uh, not something that one does uh, in the national parliament of a country. So the hope is that, given that the big vast majority of uh, reformists have been disqualified from running, and the remaining uh, candidates. Uh, can form a sort of moderate uh, parliament that would be most supportive of the Rouhani, Rouhani administration. So Rouhani never, to summarize, Rouhani never actually in wars or publicly supported the Green Movement, but he has been very supportive of the release of the leaders of Green Movement and uh, national reconciliation and moving forward and trying to open up uh, the political space in Iraq. I must say that compared to Ahmadinejad uh, era, eight years of Ahmadinejad, the cultural and political space in Iranian universities is much more open. And a huge number of books that uh, didn't get permission to be published in Iran have not been published. There are more lively discussions in Iranian universities. And uh, for this election, uh, let me mention this important fact. Uh, investigative Iranian journalist Akbar Ganji, who has spent seven years in jail in Iran and now lives in exile in the United States, uh, he called for uh, people to go and uh, vote in such a way that the worst of hardliners would not be re-elected and not uh, go back to the parliament and assembly of experts. He, uh, and I mentioned it in the National Interest article, uh, that call has actually taken steam, and now even in Iran they are talking about it. In fact, that has become so strong that hardliners have started taking positions against it. Former President Mohammad Khatami, who was a reformist, also issued a statement that, uh, on, on Saturday, just uh, two, three days ago, calling for the same thing. He said, if it is not possible to vote for the candidates that we want to get elected, we cannot vote uh, by not voting uh, uh, for those, the worst of those hardliners, and preventing them from, uh, you know, uh, being sent to assembly of experts and parliament. Mm -hmm. So that's the minimum expectations that we have. And given that there is a lot of excitement about these elections, and given all these calls, and given the social, uh, social network activity, and so on, we are hoping. People like me are hoping that. They would, this would be the beginning of something better for Iran, where we have a more open political space, we have less pressure on people, we have uh, you know, better foreign policy for Iran, and we have, more, uh, we have reconciliation not only within Iran, but also outside Iran, and in particular in the Middle East. Yeah, well, um, again, the article is Iran's elections, reformists, hardliners, and the deep state. Yeah, they got one there, too. They're military, industrial, special forces, exactly. uh, spies, money-making complex, just like in the U.S. And now, so I wanted to ask you about um, the uh, the economy and how much it's improved uh, since the lifting of the sanctions. I know it's been a very short amount of time, but that's what people really vote on, right? They did, and uh, it is too early to expect that, you know, the effect of lifting the sanctions would show up right away. But I must say that since Rouhani took office in June of, uh, in August of 
2013, inflation has been totally tamed. Inflation, when he took office, was running around 50%, but now uh, uh, even World Bank and International Monetary Fund report that the inflation is around 10%, so it has drastically been reduced. Uh, the in- unemployment rate has improved a bit, but the economy is still in sort of a recession uh, because of two important factors. The crippling sanctions that were imposed on Iran illegally, in my view, by the United States and its allies that were just lifted, and the vast corruptions by the Mahmoud Ahmadinejad administration, uh, basically he and his allies plundered the national resources, wasted uh, over a trillion dollars that Iran had uh, from oil income during uh, oil exports during his administration, and left Rouhani administration with huge internal debt to uh, central bank and, and other financial organizations. So it would take time for the economy to improve, but at least now people have hope for improvement because the sanctions have been lifted. President Rouhani, in his trip to Europe, uh, signed several uh, important uh, commercial agreements with Italy and France. Uh, there, there is going to be uh, new investment by European countries in Iran, and Iran's oil have started flowing to Europe again, and therefore there is hope for a better economy in the future. Well, and uh, hopefully a better and better relationship with the empire, but I guess we'll see about that. We're we're still back in Badr in Iraq, but fighting them in Syria, so never know how that's going to shake out. Thanks again for coming back on the show, Mohammed. You're great. It's always great talking to you, Scott. All right, so that's Mohammed Sahimi. He is at the nationalinterest.org.